0: The opinions and views expressed on this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. For more information about the show or other programs on KUCI, please log on to KUCI.org for the latest program schedule.
1: Hey, this is Dr. Michael Drake, Chancellor at the University of California, Irvine, and you're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and over the web at KUCI.org. I love Anita Radio.
0: Good morning, everyone. I'm your host, Claudia Shambaugh, welcoming you to the February 26, 2013 edition of Ask a Leader. As we witness yet another manufactured financial crisis due to ad hoc management of the National Treasury, we must take pause of the drain that this creates on the conduct of responsible public policy. Among important matters not being addressed is the unregulated contaminants in and around our homes. My first guest, UCI Professor Bruce Blumberg, will talk about his research into what he calls obesogens what they are, what they do, and from where do they come. The second guest on Ask a Leader will be Mark Chamberlain, who's tirelessly represent, presented art that makes you think and rethink what's going on in the global scheme of things. He's curated an amazing exhibit for all to see in Laguna Beach. We'll hear all about that in the second half. Don't go away. We'll be right back after a brief interlude. Thank you, everybody, for staying with us. Today, my first guest is Dr. Bruce Blumberg, UCI Professor of Development and Cell Biology, Pharmaceutical Sciences, and Biomedical Engineering. He received his Bachelor of Arts at Rutgers, then his Ph.D. at UCLA. After his postdoc work at UCLA and his staff scientist research at the Salk Institute, Bruce joined the UCI faculty in 1998. His current research focuses, and everybody stay with me on this, it's, it's a heady, heady lot of work he's been doing while we've been uh, f- playing with our navels here. His research focuses on the role of nuclear hormone receptors in development, physiology, and disease. Particular interests include patterning of the vertebrate, that's us, nervous system, the different effects of endocrine disrupting chemicals, on laboratory model organisms like rats compared with us interactions between xenobiotic metabolism inflammation and cancer and the role of environment excuse me environmental endocrine disrupting chemicals on the development of obesity and diabetes bruce blumberg and his colleagues coined the term obesogen in a 2006 journal article to refer to chemicals that cause animals to store fat Initially, this concept was highly controversial among obesity experts, but a growing number of peer-reviewed studies have confirmed in his finding and identified some 50, perhaps as many as um, 20 to 50 substances as obesogens. Dr. Blumberg, Has developed six U.S. patents and has published over 95 peer reviewed research papers that have been cited more than 11,000 times and an extensive number to which we add ourselves today. He joins me in Studio A. Welcome to Ask a Leader, Dr. Bruce Blumberg.
1: Good morning, Claudia.
0: We are glad to have you with us today. I'm, I've covered on previous programs the hazards of plastics, especially those with phthalates, uh, but this obesogen came to my attention only recently when Nicholas Kristof talked about your work in his January 20 editorial in New York Times. Tell us about this public health hazard, obesogens, how you found it, what were you looking for?
1: How we found it is a bit of a long story. It might take the whole half hour to tell you that, but. <sighs> We were initially looking at how chemicals might be metabolized differently in humans and animals in collaboration with uh, the Japanese government. So the Japanese government had, had measured the concentration of 20 chemicals all throughout Japan in every body of water of any size from puddles to the Sea of Japan. And they wanted to know whether these chemicals could be metabolized differently in humans and in animals. And one of the hormone receptors that we work on regulates that metabolism. And I was sitting in a meeting in the south of Japan. It was, everything was in Japanese, so I was having a difficult time paying attention because I don't speak Japanese. But and you a guy were. got up and he said that a chemical called tributyltin sex-reversed fishes. And we already knew that they sex, tributyltin sex-reversed snails, so that caught my attention. And like, where was
0: that substance? What's it used in industry?
1: Tributyltin tin used to be painted on the bottom of ship hulls to make uh, marine life not grow there, because uh, okay. as you can imagine, if you have a lot of goo growing on the bottom of a ship, it haul. makes it go slower through the water. Okay. So tributyl tin was a replacement for copper, which was extraordinarily toxic, kills everything. So tributyl tin was better; it didn't kill everything, it's but cheaper too. It had this effect on snails. Okay. So we, I called back to the lab and said, guys, test tributyl tin on all the receptors. And we found that it activated not a steroid receptor like we would have expected, but it activated a receptor which is called PPR gamma, which is the key regulator of fat development. So after that, we were kind of dragged in the direction of studying tributyltin and and fat development. And we coined the word obesogen to describe tributyltin chemicals like it.
0: Like it. So that was the the first substance, the first chemical you're working with. Well, um, it's... It's an amazing connection that you made then. Um, What is it like to be a scientist ahead of the research, uh, ahead of conventional thinking, and defending your laborious research? Painful. (laughs) Really?
1: Yes, because it's it's difficult to get such work funded. So I think the very first grant application I ever wrote on this topic came back with a comment from one of the expert reviewers saying, why would you waste our time with such a ridiculous idea as this? Everyone knows that you get fat from eating too much and exercising too little. So, so that's that, where we started.
0: That's the conventional wisdom in your face.
1: The conventional wisdom.
0: So was that were. an NIH um, an reviewer? It was an NIH panel, yeah. But they've changed, uh, we're, and we're going uh, <clears throat> to get that, to um, that. So that was the uh, tin, and then, um, as was mentioned, um, was the, the triflomazole? Uh, Trif-
1: triflumazole is another and, chemical we use. And where does published. that show up? And- triflumazole is a fungicide that's used widely on leafy green vegetables and a, a different kinds of fruits. So the, 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 the fact that a fungicide could be an obesogen is particularly troublesome because what are we supposed to eat in order to be healthy? Fruits and vegetables. Where do we use fungicides in the world on fruits and vegetables? So by doing what we're supposed to be doing, we're being exposed to chemicals that we would rather not be exposed to.
0: Wow. So,
1: so organic is, is the way to go.
0: So that's okay, that's one of the prescriptive takeaway messages here about um, choosing our food, and it's and the, there's no that we don't ever have any tr- tracing of that being used. We can just assume conventionally produced produce is going to be using this fungicide in uh, mainstream production.
1: Conventionally produced produce uses a whole host of of chemicals, including fungicides. Okay. It's it's difficult to know if you buy any piece of, of fruit or any type of vegetable, just what's been used on it. There's no requirement for labeling that.
0: Well, uh, now we we were faced with uh, making choices on our statewide ballot about um, uh, engineered food um bio, uh, sorry uh, genetically engineered food but uh, you maybe have some concerns about labeling uh, processing this or is it just unbelievably unwieldy to try to track down what all has been used in the production
1: well oh, it's not unwieldy it just means that someone has to actually document what they're doing okay which they should be doing anyway
0: right but there there's an incentive not to because this is a now it's become increasingly better known what these substances are doing
1: Yes, and as soon as you label that your lettuce contains these seven chemicals, many people would say, "Hmm, I don't think I want to buy that." Yes. So that might actually create some pressure to change practices.
0: Okay. So that we do, we, there's a lot of takeaway messages. So I hope everybody's keeping good notes here about um, what to do, and we'll we'll wrap it up too with uh, with our maybe the best uh, the best efforts of our energies and that kind of a thing. So the fungicides and the um, the the uh, the the um, whole, let's say, the whole paint thinners, there are containers, linings, that also are a concern with this. So in all of our canned foods, or Mm -hmm. are we able to tell which canned foods have these kinds of um, obesogens in them?
1: We're not actually able to tell. So most waterproof linings of cans and cartons, even organic-containing things, are lined with chemicals, are, are lined with plastic polymers of bisphenol A, and a related chemical called BADGE, bisphenol A diglycidal ether. And these le- are known to leach into the food, and we have some level of exposure. More than 90% of the population has bisphenol A in their blood and urine.
0: And that's the BPA? BPA, yes. The, for short, and that we can, we can say, it, it's labeled as non-BPA plastic, but we don't know, the pre- and we, we have to trust that that labeling is correct.
1: No, it probably is correct, but what's, the, what's it replaced with?
0: Exactly. So industry oh, likes point. to
1: play this whack-a-mole game where if you make them not use one chemical, they use the most most similar chemical that they can. So what's being used to replace bisphenol A is bisphenol S, which is almost exactly the same chemical, but the body of literature is much smaller, so they get away with that for a while.
0: So that's why you're a proponent of just dispensing entirely with any kind of a plastic container, looking for the glass, the metal, um, I mean, well, there's is it?
1: metal. If you buy a can, like for example, an aluminum can, it's lined with bisphenol layer badge.
0: Well, I'm thinking in terms of storage. Storage what absolutely. What we stainless have steel. already at home, yeah, stainless yeah. steel. We can't we take take the stainless steel everywhere. And maybe I don't know. For we're, we're going to start seeing a more sort of a deluxe line of containers back in stainless steel with dropping some of these uh, later
1: introduced alloys. Well, they're out there, and you know they're not breakable. You drop them, and they don't break. And my stainless steel water bottle keeps my water cold. Actually, right, Because right. it's a thermos bottle, so there's no downside there.
0: No, no. And I, I, I accumulated those. In fact, I'm, I'm all looking for uh, in the, even the reuse market anything to replace all these things with, with the glass, the glass bowls, containers, and that kind of thing. What about, I mean, the plastic wraps and all that? We don't even know what those are made of. We're just uh, are you dispensing well, with that entirely?
1: It's known what they're made of, but for you and I to know is Yes, difficult. that's the point. But someone knows what someone they're made knows.
0: of. Someone knows. Okay.
1: What I try to tell people is do the best you can. So you're much better off without plastic contacting your food or your beverages. It's very difficult to eliminate it 100%. So do the best you can and you're ahead of the game.
0: You must absolutely just go crazy when you see people pop their plastic into a microwave and heat up their lunch.
1: That's not so good. Yeah, I don't go crazy. It's people are allowed to do whatever they want.
0: Right, right. But I mean, I I mean, it's that's that practice has ended some years ago. But it's um, you know, most circles. But I know it still happens, and I don't know whether intervening on that person's uh, benefit there would um, is considered a. A courteous uh, gesture or not, but uh, it's it's crossed my mind. Well, for those who have just joined us, my guest is Dr. Bruce Blumberg. Uh, Blumberg, I'm sorry, Bruce, uh, developmental biologist at UC Irvine. We're talking about the obesogens that he has uh, coined the term about, uh, concerning substances that are in our food supply. They're also in they're in cosmetics.
2: Mm-hmm. They're
0: in jet fuel. I mean, what are we going to do about pilots? jet fuel? That's well, everywhere.
1: Jet fuel is much more of a concern for people on military bases and people who live in very dusty areas, like in the South, where they actually spray jet fuel to keep the dust down.
0: They still do that? Yes. I so, thought that was discontinued with the gravel on roads, but it's still, it's, it's a crop duster.
1: I wouldn't say crop duster, but it, it's, it's still used in, in some areas. So the, wow. the, the jet fuel work of Michael Skinner's was actually funded by the Department of Defense because they're interested in that.
0: My goodness. So there's... That's that's just going to be um, a practice that, about which we can't really do a thing.
1: Mm, the military does what they want to do, Hard with or without the their disclosure.
0: Mind. Okay, and um, let's see. We're talking about cosmetics. Uh, are there particular ones? Are are is there labeling that that can guide us about the constituents of yeah. uh, shampoos and lotions and I don't know foundations, lipsticks. I,
1: So the answer, that's a complicated one. You would imagine, given the notoriety of chemicals and personal care products, that there would be a line of -hmm. personal care products that didn't have the phthalates and the parabens and, and the chemicals that we'd rather they didn't have. But I'm not aware of any such line today. Some things have to be labeled, other things not. They're ingredients that are on the generally recognized as safe list, which I don't know where that list came from, but there is a list of ingredients really? that are called, generally recognized as safe. Wow. And you don't have to label those.
0: So, uh, okay, all you polymer and other uh, chemists out here on, on, at UCI campus, there's a, there's a market there. To, there's a niche to try Absolutely. to introduce a cosmetic line that says we are clean through and through.
1: It's not just cosmetics. So the, the, I think that the salvation to the chemical problem, and you may be, some people may say it's not a problem. Some people may say it's a small problem. Others may say it's a catastrophic problem. We don't really know how big a problem it is. But we could eliminate the problem by simply changing our practices. It's possible to design and make chemicals that are inherently without hazard. And that field is called green chemistry. So many of us in the environmental health sciences community have linked up with green chemists who are interested in making chemicals that are without hazard. And we're showing them how to test. Okay, you've made this, these monomers of plastic. Let's test them and see which of these might be endocrine disruptors. And the ones that are, you can either change the structure so that they're not. Or maybe you want to say, mm, this type of chemical is, is troublesome, so I'm going to go with a different group of chemicals.
0: That's going, to, that's going to take a long time, but let's talk about, are this This is a growing group. Do you see more and more attending? And
1: this is a growing group. This younger
0: people that are sort of moving through the, mm-hmm. the farm team of uh, researchers? Absolutely. Are you encouraged, Bruce?
1: I am. Okay. The Green Chemistry and Environmental Health Sciences uh, collaboration is, is, it's taken a while to get going. We started working on that in 2007.
0: Right after that, Obesogen was coined. Yeah. Oh, and wow. And
1: the first paper by our group was published in two, just in January in the Journal Green Chemistry.
0: The Journal of Green Chemistry. Mm-hmm. Do we have that available at the UCI Library? Probably. or Or at the Ayala Science Library? I would guess it's at the Science Library. Oh, this is great, great news. A uh, revelation for me, and I'm sure many of the listeners who are joining here on Ask a Leader at KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine, streaming to you live all over the world, all, where all the phthalates are sprinkling, on a KUCI.org. So... Um, What? uh, let's talk a little bit about, well, the the green chemistry uh, sort of following as it's growing. um, uh, Is industry a part of this congregation, of congregating? So this is an
1: interesting phenomenon. So industry talks the talk. So they say, I've been at meetings where they say, we would love to get endocrine disruptors out of products. And last year they said, but we just don't know how to do it. And now they're saying, "Oh, yes, we know how to do it, and we've been testing all along, which they haven't, but that's they have that's, not they you have not. you
0: know that because you have peers
1: well we, we know, industry right we we know how to do it and and they don't do the ones who say that they're testing for endocrine disruptors are not really. they're doing more testing than they previously did, which is a very good thing start but they're very far from testing in an appropriate way
0: so they are they're not coming to the green uh, conferences, but they're
1: Oh, they they come. They're coming. They're and listening in. They're trying to define the field in their own way.
0: Oh, okay, A little proactive, a little yes. d- a defensive, <laughs> yes. backward, enge- defensive backward engineering, something like that. Well, uh, the the certainly the question has come up uh, in uh, the press, in uh, science circles, which I've been uh, uh, privy that um, that this collision about which we're speaking is somewhat. Uh, uh, representative of what has gone on with the tobacco industry. Some people think maybe the tobacco industry hung in for a longer time with denying the hazards of what they've laced the tobacco with and uh, or what's present naturally in tobacco leaves. But what are the similarities uh, or the differences with how the industry has responded with the hazards of these obesogens carrying substances?
1: There are many similarities in the, the industry playbook. Please tell us. The first is that they're saying there is no hazard, that these chemicals, they're really not very hazardous. And even if they were hazardous, exposure is so low that we shouldn't worry about it. That's what's happening with bisphenol A right now. There was a meeting of the, there was a session about bisphenol A at the American Association for the Advancement of Science, and they had... Two people there talking about how it's just not possible that any of us are exposed to bisphenol A, and those of you who measure it in people are really making mistakes. You're sloppy scientists. Oh, not that again. That's what they're doing. So, same old story.
0: So, but increasingly your your peers and uh, and more are picking up on this, adding to this, and there's the the industry still uh, just doesn't see mm-hmm. the, the trend here where there there needs to be. A, I guess a reckoning and a and a ramping up of their own kind of uh, science to um, head off this public well, health hazard.
1: What ha- there, there there's a dichotomy in industry between what I'll call the scientists and the suits. Okay. So the scientists, by and large, are you know uh, normal, responsible people who care about the safety of the products that they make and whether things are dangerous or not dangerous. But once a product passes out of the realm of research and into production, then it's in control of the suits, and what they want to do is just keep selling the product and, and making profits, and they don't want to hear anything that will change that. So there's a tremendous amount of inertia. It's like trying to, to turn around an oil tanker.
0: Well, you yeah. know, it
1: takes a tremendous amount of effort to turn it, and you have to start very far in advance. So the field has a lot of inertia, and until... Moms stand up and shout and say, "We don't want these products containing endocrine-disrupting chemicals." They're going to continue selling them.
0: And let's—we haven't really gotten into the um, breaking down of the the exposure. Um, uh, Problems that um, you're talking about, moms, uh, Bruce. It's the the critical part. This where this exposure uh, has a, an impact on on this um, the obesogen that the propensity for an animal, a human, an organism, to uh, accumulate more fat, to pre- manufacture more fatty cells. Correct. Mm-hmm. And it, it's the exposure is in the prenatal and the the early childhood stages, or right through puberty.
1: That's correct. So we believe that the most dangerous time for chemical exposure, for exposure to endocrine disruptors in general, and to obesogens in particular, is during prenatal and development in early life. And we've shown, we just published a couple weeks ago, that our favorite chemical, tributyltin, that the effects of prenatal exposure of a pregnant mouse to tributyltin last at least three generations my gosh so that means the effect is permanent and we don't believe that we've caused any mutations That this is and what's called an epigenetic change in gene expression that's permanent and michael skinner at washington state has also shown the same thing for bisphenol a dibutyl phthalate diethylhexyl phthalate and jet fuel
0: my that's just staggering
1: so there's five chemicals right there
0: wow They're everywhere. Well, this is real pause, folks, for um, the choices that we're making. They're having not just a a, well. I mean, up to three generations, and um, and we don't even and none of this is talking about any kind of interactive effects. That's always the in my simple uh, chemically uh, handling mind. Is I think that all right. One there's one particular isolated substance but then my mind goes wild when i think of if there's what about the interactive effects of all these substances we haven't even gotten to that and that that can be even more perilous and harder to find out
1: that's correct we're all exposed to mixtures of chemicals and we in the laboratory study isolated pure chemicals because we need to discern the effects of one chemical so you can tell industry what's the effect of mixtures
0: right oh so that that well how do you sleep
1: I sleep well. You sleep. I'm doing you, the best I can. You
0: can do. You, I mean, I, I I asked this of scientists who are who are watching these things. while we're we're twiddling our thumbs, and I, I can't imagine with with uh, this heady exposure that you have to th- these hazards that exposure in terms of the, the intellectual kind that is uh, that you you know can fathom that this can be turned around. I, mean,
1: I always caution people. In fact, I was speaking with speaking with a reporter last night. You have to do the best you can, and. You need to keep perspective. So these chemicals are dangerous. They're out there. Exposure is ubiquitous. But I think the stress from worrying about it might be as bad as the actual exposure. That's true. So yes. do the best you can. Live your life in the in, 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 in the, the most responsible way that, that works for your lifestyle. And that's the best you can do. Make fresh food. Eat organic. Get plastic out of your life. Those are easy steps that we can all take.
0: We can all take. And um, you were talking in the beginning about... NIH dismissing your findings in the beginning, but now they are definitely on board with supporting your research. Well,
1: that that depends on which part. So the NIH has a number of institutes, and there's some institutes. The National Institute of Environmental Health Sciences, who's charged with understanding how the environment affects health, is very much on board. The National Institute of, of Digestive Disorders and Kidney Diseases, who should be funding this work couldn't care less about chemicals. Why is that? That's just their 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 point of view. That's they represent the mainstream community. It's calories in, calories out. All calories are the same. Maybe it's a mutation. Let's look for more genes. That's the philosophy and and again that's that's like trying to change direction of an oil tanker. They're not going for it. they're not doing it.
0: So are you looking to having one of those other institutes within NIH eventually prevail and uh, sort of influence their colleagues and those other branches to well, that, to get on board? That,
1: that's not for me to say. I would hope that the quality of the science and the number of good papers showing that these effects are real will eventually convince people on the study sections that NIDDK runs that maybe there's something here that ought to be investigated.
0: And the incidence of this... Obesity you're seeing is where those plastics are ever-present in consumption. You don't see this obesity in countries that are relying on different other production means, that's uh, a, processing.
1: That's a tough one. Um, many things are different throughout the world. Exactly. So we lead the world in obesity. We probably lead the world in the use of chemicals agriculturally and in the distances that we transport food why
0: plastic is so nifty.
1: Not just plastic, but all kinds of, of chemicals Le- that we use to make a head of lettuce grown in Salinas, be saleable in New York okay. three days from now, and last for a week. That, that's not the way um, organic food works. You buy an organic head of lettuce, it doesn't look very good in three or four days, because it isn't chock full of chemicals to keep it looking good. So there are many, many practices that are different around the world, so it's pretty tough to point the finger at plastic. I think plastic is pretty ubiquitous. Oh it is. Yeah, I don't think that we're more plasticky than I don't know, the Germans or the Italians or the Swiss. How
0: about the about Asians aren't
1: aren't probably even more. Even more pa- plastic. Packaged there. food and everything is packaged and comes from machines in Japan, for example. Okay. So there there are many more factors there. So plastic is certainly an important one. Chemical use is an important one. Diet, the Sedentary. nature of our diet yes. is, is an important one.
0: Okay. Okay. Well, for those of you who joined us, we are wrapping up a, a really informative interview here with Dr. Bruce Blumberg, UCI Professor of Developmental and Cell Biology, Pharmaceutical Sciences, and Biomedical Engineering here on Radio KUCI. Ask a Leader. Well, I, I'd i like to have us close on where you think the best efforts, you've mentioned a little bit about how we as consumers uh You know, reflect our preferences in the marketplace. Are there anything, any measures that you recommend in the political arena?
1: Well, the political arena is kind of outside of my sphere of influence. I wish that the policymakers would pay attention to the science.
0: Has anybody in Orange County, the congressional delegation, been listening?
1: That I wouldn't know. I haven't heard from any of them. Okay. And you don't go.
0: I know sometimes uh, colleagues in other. Uh, science uh, field here at UCI. They'll they'll make the occasional trip, and it's probably because they want to get funding for their, some uh, nuclear uh, facility, or um, I'm thinking particular some um, some particular uh, projects. But uh, but you're you're not in yourself in contact with any of them because the funding you're working on is strictly through so NIH. Sorry, I,
1: I work with other people who are doing. Whose, whose expertise is in those areas. I can tell you that in the, the Michelle Obama's commission's report about obesity, obesogens were mentioned there. Yes, yes. That was through efforts of our colleagues at NIEHS, got that put in there.
0: Okay, good. Well, I bet you were really encouraged when that came up. We were. But, but is, she, is she repeating those words? That I don't know. Okay, so let, well, let's hope that she is. Well, uh, Dr. Bruce Blumberg, I'm so glad that you could join us today on Ask a Leader. He's mining the store, folks, with researching those obesogens, the presence of them in 50 substances, and I imagine the list just grows the more uh, growing you're, all the time. And you're finding more and more. Well, I thank you for being on the show today. Uh, it's been a real pleasure. Good luck and keep up the good work on all of our behalf.
1: You're welcome, Claudia. Thank you.
0: Well, we'll be right back after a a brief station break to bring on the next guest. That is uh, Mark Chamberlain, the the head of the BC Gallery in Laguna Beach. Thanks for staying with us. We're going to listen with a little bit of bar talk while we set up the next program. Thanks for staying with, with me. Thanks, everyone, for joining us. My next guest is Mark Chamberlain, a photographic artist, bc gallery co-founder and owner the current exhibit of which he's curated capital crimes our topic in this today's interview bc space laguna gallery begun had begun in 1973 exhibiting photography visual and performance art a little bit about mark chamberlain he was born and raised in dubuque iowa received a bachelor's degree in political science and a master's in business administration in 1967 from the university of iowa after two years in the U.S. Army during the Vietnam War, he moved to Southern California. An acclaimed artist, he has taught photography in several colleges. Mark's contributions read like the chronicle of Orange County history. He was a part of the Tell, and we'll hear a little bit about that, just a bit, and continues to participate in the ongoing Legacy Project at the Orange County Great Park. Currently, in his 2,400-square-foot gallery. He has curated Capital Crimes, which tackles global monetary issues. He comes to us today from Laguna Beach. Welcome to Ask a Leader, Mark Chamberlain. Well,
2: thank you, Claudia.
0: Mark, you've been a sustaining contributor and a visionary of the environmental historical legacy of the central swath of Orange County. Can you briefly tell us how you got from being visionary of the environmental and historical legacy of the central swath of the county. Can you tell us about uh, making your transition from this veteran status to the, the solid liberal arts education into becoming an artist documenting the facts in the ground, per se?
2: Well, uh, it's been, been kind of a convoluted history, as, as as you can tell. I was born in the Midwest and raised there and educated there and kind of believed in the system as I was taught and uh, my real education began when I was inducted into the military during the Vietnam era and found that my values were a little bit, a little bit out of kilter with reality. And uh, I made an abrupt change uh, as soon as I got out. Uh, the realities of going into a business pursuit just didn't appeal to me. And I had uh, picked up an interest in the camera while I, was, while I was in the military, largely as a means of Oh to an extent kind of separating me from what what I was experiencing and still allowing me to observe and be a part of it and I found it to be a valuable tool, really fell in love with the the abilities to communicate with people through the through photography, and just decided that my path lay elsewhere and put everything of importance into my nineteen sixty three mg midget and trundled on out to uh, uh California with the grand ambition of of starting some kind of an enterprise that would promote the the value of this very expressive medium that I'd found and uh after quite a while now nearly 40 years the the result is BC Space which has been devoted to first off showing photography in in its early myriad forms and particularly at a time when photography was not even accepted in museums or galleries, or if, if it was, it was put in the back room. But uh, my partner, Jerry Birchfield, uh, whom I was fortunate to meet at a crucial time, he's the B of B.C., and I'm the C. Okay. That, uh, he shared uh, my enthusiasm uh, for the prospects for photography, and we created a gallery that was devoted originally exclusively to photography. And, uh, but it's evolved since then. Uh, uh, photography has become accepted, uh, on an equal plane, and, and we started quite a few years ago admitting the other mediums on an equal basis, if you will. Yes. But a big part of, of our, both of, of Jerry's and my interests from the beginning was what's going on with the environment. And, uh, we did our personal work, uh, that dealt with it, and, uh, we finally began collaborating uh, in 1980. We opened the gallery in 1973, and in 1980, uh, we finally hatched a, a plan that, uh, that we could execute to try to do something about it locally. And the big threat at that time was the loss of Laguna Canyon to development. So that's when we began uh, the Laguna Canyon Project in 1980.
0: And that was the which became later the tell and and you were um, you are able to to present to a a a curious visitor at the gallery a um, a sort of a slideshow of what was put together that that culminated in a a a very large performance art art installation political movement to uh, restore the canyon in the state that all of us are totally benefiting from here in 2013 many many years after that so for those of you who don't have a clue this that was going to almost look like the strips along 405 was going to crawl right up the canyon and uh with the same sort of mind numbing uh same styles and it's the the tribute to mark chamberlain et al with um the the work of the tell that, uh, as you said, when you finally lined up about a thousand people all along the Laguna Canyon, uh,
2: about eleven thousand,
0: right? That um, that you know, fly over, walk over, drive past uh, these people rallying with uh, their their feet, voting with their feet voting with their participation in this monumental artwork to tell. And people, I suppose you can Google it too if you can't get to the to the gallery and get a special view that I was privy to. Um, you can see on how it was a, an unfolding insta- uh, installation that um, presented uh, many, many layered messages of what it means to maintain the integrity of Laguna Canyon in its natural state. And there were waves of movements after that because of the tow road punching through there that were not as successful, but, um, but you can, uh, we, we pay tribute to that too. Well, now we've, um, I've led other KUCI listeners on audio tours. Let's, uh, let's do the same, uh, starting with this unassuming entrance of your gallery on Forest Avenue at 235 Forest Avenue.
2: Okay. Um. Well, uh, uh, it, I, I look at B.C. as kind of an inverse rabbit warren. Yeah. Uh, all we have is a visibility on the street is a door with a very discreet sign on it. And, of course, we're competing with uh, storefronts that are clamoring for attention um, for... Old visitors to the beach and the like, but our audience generally is uh, the, the people who are, are looking for decorations over their couch uh, wouldn't find our work of much interest to begin with, so the narrow doorway is actually uh, kind of an advantage. People who want to find BC can easily find it, and uh, uh, we're we, the only people who get to the top of the stairs are the people who know where they're going, and I far prefer to talk to people who know where they're going. And uh, not that we don't want to try to educate other people, but uh, it, it generally is, is kind of a waste of time unless they're already sensitized. But what, we've, what we have at B.C. is, is really a, a kind of a treasure, which we happened to stumble on at an early stage, was the original Masonic Lodge in, in Laguna. And they didn't want a lot of notoriety in those days, so they had the business downstairs in narrow Stairway, and a simple entry, but it unfolds into a really magnificent space, uh, as I think you could see when when you visited yesterday. That uh, we've turned into a series of, of gallery spaces that uh, I think move rather comfortably. They create a bit of a challenge for uh, uh, doing an exhibition such as, as Capital Crimes, but it, they also provide the advantage of being able to have kind of pockets of topics in each one of, of the various spaces. And the, the challenge for a show like Capital Crimes was, well, first off, the issues are very timely. I mean, the, at the root of uh, many of the problems that you discussed in your earlier segment with Dr. Bloomberg, we're dealing with uh, economics. If you come down to the heart of the problems that he was talking about, uh, it's the pursuit of profit with a lack of ethics that seems to be one of the most important contributing factors to the, why people don't change. And we're all experiencing right now uh, the results of some catastrophic uh, uh, level of, of corruption within our whole culture, much of which can be traced to greed. Yes. And the exploitation of, of our air, land, and, and, and water in pursuit of profits to the detriment of, the, of many of us uh, the changes in what has happened with uh, the distribution of uh, our our commonwealth uh, oh, is, is phenomenal when you start to examine it. And we solicited artists to uh, artists whose work we respect and whose recommendations we respected to address the topic.
0: And that and is not- the Capital Crimes. That is the name of the exhibit, with over sixty uh, artists. Uh, exhibited there uh, many of whom are your friends as you've talked a bit about and your colleagues in your activist life and this was um this was leading up you're putting it together leading up to the last uh, the 2012 presidential election it's a and it's as you say it's a very dense show i i noticed that each exhibited item is itself an essay or possibly a treatise it's a it's just remarkable how much is there and so um i uh and also, I want to mention for those you wonder. I mean, some of the, these things are for sale. You can, um, I think, some of them are are Mark's sort of personal, sort of uh, stash, Mark's personal work. But uh, much of this is um, also for sale. Make them an offer. Uh, uh, value highly uh, the these. Um, these pieces with such succinct uh, commentaries in each one of them. Well, let's maybe we can touch on some of the work. And b- before we do, I want to just remind listeners: you're listening to Ask a Leader here on KUCI 80.9 FM in Irvine, streaming all across the world on the web at kuci.org. My guest is Mark Chamberlain, the co-founder now uh, of the BC Gallery and, and the curator director here of the Capital. Crimes uh, exhibit now, which is, um, I want to say, it's going to be, it's extended yet another time until March 20, through March 23rd, correct? Correct. Okay, so um, let's, I wanted to, um bring up a few pieces uh, it's not representative but I just want to uh, get people's juices flowing with the what the prospects are the, uh, the, the range the the texture the, the, the you know dimensions and all that there's a uh, Daria Sol uh, her piece is called Glory and greed it's a multimedia canvas of the American flag. Can you talk us through uh, some of the aspects of her work and her, and her as an artist?
2: Sure. Well, well Daria, uh, which, by the way, is a pseudonym because uh, the artist who, who uses that name has, when she's used her own name in the past, being a Persian woman, uh, she's received all kinds of threats and other, other things, so it was her choice to go under the name Daria Sola. And what she's created is, is an American flag uh, that, that has written in oil. In the red stripes are representative names of the American soldiers that died in the Iraq war uh which have now counted up to 7,000 people and written in what would be the white stripes where she's put in dollar signs in Arabic are the prayers that are given over uh the civilian casualties that have have been collateral damage uh in in that war all of which as we've now as we continue to find out was a war of choice rather than a war of necessity. And she alludes, too, to the fact of how many American soldiers, and there's also similar things with the civilians, collateral damage that goes on and on. We now find out that uh, uh, soldiers who have committed suicide exceeded those who were killed in combat over the last year.
0: It's really uh, a remarkable isn't statistic.
2: Isn't that so? And, and all of this kind of goes back to, I mean, something that really grabbed me with Daria's work, was the fact as as someone who got to observe the operations of the military uh it's a horrible experience that we we subject our youth to and we do it over and over again it seems like every generation has to has to face something of this of this nature but that's a topic that can be <laughs> another whole whole thing but daria's work certainly addresses that and and as you'll notice as you may may notice what uh, the, the show is so dense that, that uh, the artists were very obliging in allowing me to kind of commingle the pieces. And Daria's piece is also, uh, uh, seated in front of it are two chairs that are burning uh, that are by uh, Lynn Kubasik. And the title of her works are The Words Cease to Have Meaning. And that it's, it's so horrific that we're all sitting in these burning chairs and watching this happen and perhaps doing nothing about it.
0: So that there's an interplay then with the exhibited pieces. It's really un, it's really remarkable, and um, there in the okay, uh,
2: thank you, thank you by the way, because that's that's kind of my contribution to it is that uh, uh, all of these artists were trusting enough that they would allow me to do that with their work. Yeah, the, uh, but uh, there's a synergy to it.
0: That, yes, uh,
2: is the purpose
0: absolutely. And then in the audiovisual uh, medium is Lev Anderson's John Doe falling, and that's a breakdown of John Doe, and then John falling. Or what was the other?
2: It's it's, it's John. The title of Lev's piece is John Doe falling. Right, down, and it it combines uh, the classical movie with Walter Brennan and Gary Cooper uh, on uh, John Doe goes to Washington, and uh, the other one is. Uh, is falling down with michael douglas
0: right there it is and that's an incredible piece i i don't think i when we go to sit in front of these video pieces we never know how long they are to to figure out you know is this going to be how many minutes i maybe you want to post that sort the length of it underneath like you know pin the duration of that so we know because sometimes you don't know how long you're going to be there you don't know what sort of what's the the kind of um you know the sort of framework that to, to, to expect to, this this portion is going to be a half of the message, and there's another half coming, and that kind of a thing. But is that? Yeah,
2: as, that's a good suggestion.
0: And so, uh, so I was, I, as I was viewing that, you know, it's it's remarkable uh, how oh, the the commentaries just don't change. That the Walter Brennan character is rolling out an editorial like you'd get out of Paul Krugman now, and, and this is, and he's being like this. The kind of court fool talking to the the up and coming entrepreneurs, the uh, corporate climbers, you know what they're in for, and that's the first half of this video piece that um, that um, he's put that your um, that Lev Anderson has put together. So I'm not I'm, there's no sort of spoiler alert, people. You you have to see this to 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 really. Get the whole effect of that, and with um, then the the following piece, Michael Douglas's, it's just it's just un- it's uncanny the, uh, how he thought to put, uh, Lev Anderson thought of putting those two together.
2: It was yeah, I was delighted when when Lev's Lev's piece came in, and I know he worked extremely hard on it, and it's very deft editorial uh, grabbing. Most of it was our is material that's easily available, and he took it and wove it together into what I think is a fantastic story that that fits perfectly within the context of the capital crime show and lev's piece by the way was was one of about half the pieces in the show that were generated in response to a solicitation that i sent out to the artist to address these
0: issues that is so amazing so that in such a short time they were driven they executed the the putting together the art piece and, and there it was there it is right now and so I'm I'm glad that we've had a, a number of chances to get in there with the uh, extensions of this exhibit, which originally was going to be ending at the end of January. So we've had two extra months tacked on by this time. So, and I don't know if we'll see any more extensions for those. Of you. But and no, it's
2: no, it's, we we have other other things. To people get in the works. With.
0: So it's yeah. at two three five Forest Avenue in Laguna Beach, and details can be had on the com website the normal hours are Wednesday through Saturday 2 to 5 p.m. so uh, folks if, uh, if you're looking uh, for more meaning more purpose uh, and, and a special reason to go down to, uh, to Laguna Beach, the, this, this is something to map out right away in your calendar and make sure. And we'll, we're, uh, we're going to talk about some more pieces before we go into a, a particular fundraiser that lets you experience the full use of this former Masonic Lodge space. Um, you have Shepherd Fairey's iconic Obama portrait. Is that for sale up there?
2: Well, that's, that's my piece, but yes. It would be for sale. We oh, you don't to, have to, have to have sell have to it. We to the gallery somehow. So, oh, okay. But so. there it is. So that, Everybody's that, seen that, it. It's actually a signed uh, artist proof by, by Shepherd Ferry. It's not just one of the regular ones. So Wow. It's a, it's a real treasure.
0: It's amazing. And then there's, um, in a different vein, there's the Jim Stowe's work, his photos. They're actual photos. And, and Mark had to tell me, no, these are not Photoshop. These are exactly how... Uh, this Americana is pictured, and uh, it's it's special to see them. They are unintentional, uh, and uh, or they are intentional commentaries. I should put that's what I want to say intentional because I'm going to uh, segue into an unintentional uh, commentary in a different work in a bit. But did you want to say anything about Jim Stowe's photographs there in your studio? Oh, Jim
2: Jim Stone is a wonderful friend and, and and an extraordinary artist, kind of of the old school. As as well, I'm not sure what school I'm in anymore. I keep morphing into something else.
0: Eclectica. Uh, <laughs>
2: yeah but uh, jim has been uh, he's been been pursuing the, just the the original observations of the photography the, the power to isolate things that we all walk by but don't pay attention to and to to bring renewed attention to them and use them as indexes of who we are and i think jim's uh, two pieces that we have we only have in fact each, every one of these artists uh we could have had a whole show of their their work but uh, the two representative pieces that Jim has is part of a huge body of work that is kind. Of, they're kind of iconic pictures, poignant, very poignant pictures of who we are.
0: They are.
2: And uh, his his work is is highly respected, and it's, it's been shown in major major institutions. In fact, many of the artists in the show, we have people who are rank beginners whose work merited being shown. To people of international acclaim
0: and that's the range that it, it's its is it's a marvel, and I wanted to mention because I don't think anybody maybe noticed this on the newsstand because it was a short time that this appeared on the newsstand it's the unintentional <laughs> magazine cover do you want to? I don't know if you can uh, give us the audio uh, sort of relay about well, that, but yes, I, let's I, not I'll, miss I'll, that.
2: I'll gladly do that. And by the way, we're we're desperately trying to have the whole show be available ultimately online, so you can prowl through it. And the piece that you're you're referring to is um, a, a magazine that's uh, the real title of which is is Orange County Where which I look at as one of the formula magazines that's. Uh, uh, designed to entice people to spend their money in Orange County. Uh, in a way, it's kind of like pimping for Orange County, but they got so carried away with uh, uh, with the the visuals on this particular cover. It's an uh, uh, over-plasticized, over-photoshopped woman whose head uh, in kind of a provocative pose. It's, I think the story side is about wine. <laughs> but uh, the head intrudes up into the title, the banner for the... The publication, so the where becomes whore, so it's Orange County whore. The way it and, looks,
0: you, the, the upper part of the E makes it really look like an O, but where right. her head e is. Is,
2: is is cut off, so it look it, it is an O, <laughs> and that, that's what you read. And uh, I, I looked at it as, as as kind of an advertiser's political gaffe. Uh, political gaffe is sometimes described as a politician accidentally telling the truth.
0: Yeah, right, right, and this, folks, this was printed this is for was it december 2012 this just happened this is it and it, it has the look of like a 19 late 1950s with uh the recent uh photoshopping capacity um sort of all in all in one cover but just recently in 2012 and you've you have one copy and uh, mark mentioned that he'd be interested in um auctioning it off to the highest bidder if, if mark doesn't set it at a high price. Support the artwork. I say Mark ought to hang on to this so that uh, the the public still gets to look at the the the, the just unruly irony with this magazine cover.
2: It is a treasure.
0: It is. Well, we want to close shortly, but we want to make sure everybody knows about the fundraiser for the Friendship Shelter at the BC Gallery. It's going to be on March twenty first. Public. That's all of us. We're welcome to experience. The BC Gallery, I say, in its fullest functioning and performing order. And the benefit event's going to be a presentation of a Pulitzer Prize-winning play entitled Love Letters by A.R. Gurney. And will be performed by Ava Martin and Mark Miller with music provided by Jason Fetty. I mean, this is it's set up in the space in the back in the upper part of the gallery for uh, for music performance, art, art uh, uh, composition, that kind of thing. But this will be set aside for the for the, a, a live music production. That's on March 21st, as I said. Curtain's at 7 p.m. There's a suggested donation. And tickets can be obtained through the friendshipshelter.org. Or you can phone, pencil and paper, laptops ready, 949-494-6928. And the website will give you more information about the event, too, the, the BC Crimes, uh, BC Gallery Capital Crimes. Um, so... Um, I want to close um, with thanking you for being on the show, Mark, and uh, for thank you for extending your exhibit so that we all can take part in that. It's Capital Crimes, and Mark Chamberlain is my second guest today, at, uh, the, the co-founder, owner of the BC Gallery. All the best, and thanks for being on Ask a Leader today, Mark.
2: Well, thank you, Claudia.
0: Well, it's good to have everybody joining us. I want, as I'm closing out here, I want to uh, mention that we are, um, today, it's the anniversary that um, of Trayvon Martin's death from gun violence. The Orange County cam- uh, Brady Campaign announces their general meeting tomorrow, February 27th at 7 p.m., with much to share about plans for California and our nation on new proposals for gun laws and public awareness campaigns at St. Mark Presbyterian Church, 2200 San Joaquin Hills Road, Newport Beach. You can check out directions on O.C. Brady Campaign Chapters' uh, website, Orange Chapter at gmail.com. Next week, I'm going to have Katie Ingemeyer, creator and organizer of the, the Nerds Meetup uh, website for... Uh, you nerds out there wanting to get together. So, meanwhile, uh, we've got George Rosales next up with George hat. Thanks for joining me today. Thanks for listening. The house is taking all your chips. Unpack your bags and sink the ships. Grab your headshot and grab your phone. Call it hell to the car.